0: You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin.
1: Many would say the crown jewel of the American criminal justice system is the jury trial in a courtroom. In such a courtroom, with shining wood and gleaming marble, presided over by a robe judge, a defendant is tried before a jury of his peers in a public proceeding. Those jurors must reach a unanimous verdict on a standard of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. But in our federal system, only a tiny fraction, less than five percent, of all indicted cases ever go to trial. The remaining 95 plus percent are resolved by guilty pleas. In these cases, defendants plead guilty to the charges in an indictment that has been returned by a grand jury. That grand jury, guided by a federal prosecutor, has met entirely in secret. In these cases, there's no trial in a courtroom, no jury, and although the guilty plea is given in court to a judge, the judge's principal role is merely to assure that the guilty plea is knowing and voluntary. Why is this? Well, many defendants, of course, are guilty, but there are powerful systemic disincentives for any defendant to go to trial in the many gray area cases. Federal prosecutors have virtually unfettered power to engage in so-called charge bargaining with defendants, dropping more serious charges or threatening to add them in order to induce a guilty plea to a lesser charge. The federal sentencing guidelines are complicit in this process, rewarding defendants with sentencing reductions for, quote, acceptance of responsibility, close quote, i.e. pleading guilty. Guilty that effectively punish a defendant for going to trial. So the courtroom, the majestic trial courtroom, is not really the place where criminal justice happens in over 95% of cases. Criminal justice plays out to a much more significant extent in a different room, the federal grand jury room, where federal indictments are returned under much different circumstances and under a much lower probable cause standard of proof. The grand jury room, in short, is the room where it happens. In this episode, we take a look at the federal grand jury. Six
0: months, 12 months, 18 months, where the grand jury, week after week, is hearing evidence. They get invested in it. They get interested in it. Sometimes they're asked to extend in order to finish that investigation, and they want to achieve a result.
1: My guest is Jeremy Sternberg, a former assistant United States attorney in the health care fraud unit in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston and currently a white-collar defense attorney at Holland & Knight. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Good morning, Jeremy. Welcome. Morning, Jim. So, Jeremy, as a former AUSA, you've been inside the federal grand jury room, at least the one in Boston, which I imagine is representative. Well, we've both been there. We've both former AUSAs in that office. Is the grand jury room anything like the sort of courtroom that people see on TV or perhaps have been to in their lives?
0: Nothing like it. For starters, it's all on one level. So there's no judge's bench or judge's area that's above the rest. It's a very ordinary kind of government-style room with a bunch of classroom-type chairs. At least one of the rooms used to have those old-fashioned desks where you They wrap around and you write on them and people who are left-handed are uncomfortable. It's it's not a majestic or grand room in any sense.
1: It reminds me of the room where I took driver's ed in in high school, Um, just kind of a makeshift, shabby government style to it. Who, Who are the grand jurors? Who are these people that come in and have this awesome and solemn power to indict people?
0: So they're the same people who are, they're drawn from the same lists as people who serve as uh, real jurors in civil and criminal cases downstairs in the real courtrooms. Uh, And they're regular citizens. Now, because of the length of grand jury service, typically one day a week for a year, and sometimes they're extended 18 months or 24 months, people who have serious jobs uh, often tell the judge that and can get out of their service. So you tend to have a larger percentage of older people, retired people, people who are not working, some students. The, the percentage of, of people with an active job is lower than I, I think than on a regular jury.
1: What's the vibe in the grand jury room? Really informal.
0: So people are dressed very casually. Uh, in the wintertime, you'll see sweatshirts and summertime T-shirts and jeans or shorts uh kind of like uh, with your high school driver's ed uh, room analogy just like in high school clicks form so people over that year 18 24 months they get to know each other and so the same people sit together the same people eat lunch together the same people are the ones you have to roust out of the the snack room before uh 10 o'clock grand jury time starts it, it's uh it's it's informal and, and you know, staying on the subject of the snack room, people come in and out a little bit. So when you've got your quorum, you start, but people will filter in after that, which is very different from a real courtroom where jurors are seated, then the proceeding gets started.
1: You, you can't even really get away with that in high school, unless it's like Jeff Spicoli in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. You have to be there when the class starts normally, right? Pretty much, yeah. Who's, who's allowed in the grand jury room besides the, besides the grand jurors?
0: Uh, Other than the grand jurors, it's a court reporter, uh, and you tend to have the same one or two of them week after week. So they get to know the grand jury, and and the other people in the room are the prosecutors.
1: You often read in the paper or hear about a grand jury being convened, and I'm using air quotes. You can't tell them in a POSCAT, but I just used air quotes around the word convened. What does that mean?
0: Uh, it doesn't mean what most people think it means in that there are constantly grand juries running. So in Boston, there are usually four or five grand juries, and, and and there are four or five grand jury rooms, and each unit will have at least one grand jury, or sometimes a unit will share them, but they're serving, and <laughs> no grand jury is specially convened for purposes of a particular case. Lots of uh, lawyers and, and even targets of grand jury investigations think, oh, my goodness, I got this grand jury subpoena. This is special for me. It's just that, that the prosecutors print off the grand jury subpoena of a stack of them on their desk, and they sign them. Uh, there's, there's no special... Con- the, the, the grand jury is convened at the beginning of its service, sworn in by a judge, starts sitting, and starts hearing cases week after week, multiple cases.
1: Yeah, I had a client once who... When I talked to him about the grand jury and the options of going in for an interview, he was just terrified of the grand jury. And then it, it, it turned out the more we talked that he said, but, but Jim, they've convened a grand jury about me. And and once I we got over like that hump, it became much smoother sailing. Jeremy, as a prosecutor, what are the steps that you would take to both present a case and ultimately – ask for the grand jury to return an indictment. What are the interactions you would have with the grand jury along that path?
0: First day with any grand jury on a new investigation, I would, if if it was a new grand jury to me, obviously introduce myself and talk to them about who the targets of the investigation are, who the likely witnesses are, and try to find out first if there are any conflicts. Does anyone know me? Does anyone know any of the Parties, any of the key witnesses, uh, and in my experience, it, it wasn't zero percent of the time, but it was very, very rare for someone to say, "I, I might not need to. I, I might not be able to serve on this grand jury." So that's the very first thing. I typically would also give them an overview of the investigation at that point: what it is we're looking at, what they're likely to hear over the next six, 9, 12 months. Uh, the kinds of people who will be coming in, how regularly we'll be meeting, and and that's, that's the initial interaction. After that, on a big, complicated case, I might see them 50, 60, 70 times week after week with multiple witnesses who are testifying in front of them. When I think, when the, when the prosecutors think the investigation is at a sufficient point, that's when the prosecutor's So-called seek an indictment, um, and how does that work? Doesn't work. uh, Sort of similar to to your client who thought that a grand jury was convened in a way that uh, was all about him and and uh, misinterpreted how the grand jury was was operating. The indictment process, other than the vote up or down on whether the grand jury should should indict, is all run by the prosecutors. The prosecutors decide when to seek the indictment. The prosecutors draft the indictment, the prosecutors decide who to charge, what to charge them with, and present the grand jurors with this document that's already a finished product on the day that the prosecutors seek to return an indictment.
1: And, and what else happens on that day? Does the prosecutor tell the grand jury you know, what the law is like a judge would in a at the conclusion of a trial?
0: Very much so. Uh, so, I would typically do the following things on on indictment day. Uh, indictment all, day? Yeah. That's a big one, right? It's a big one. I, I would wheel over, and, I, and I'm not exaggerating, wheel into the grand jury room every single document that we, the prosecutors, had subpoenaed on behalf of the grand jury so they could see everything that had been subpoenaed. Because this notion that the grand jury is conducting the investigation is a fiction. Uh, they are a vehicle through which prosecutors are conducting the investigation. So I'd bring everything in there so they could see it, so they could physically touch it, see it, take out anything they want, and then uh, present to them what the law is on the various charges that are included in the indictment, much like a judge instructs a jury at a a real trial, and then spend some time on the standard by which they have to indict. as, As you know, and as we've talked about, it's a It's a pretty forgiving standard, probable cause. Is there probable cause to believe this crime or these crimes have been committed? And I would typically, and I think most prosecutors typically, spend some time with that standard because you want them to know they're not convicting anyone today. They're not doing anything other than meeting this very low standard because the last thing you want is for them to return a so-called no bill uh, voting against the indictment.
1: So the evidence that you wheel in, uh, this would be both the documents that have been subpoenaed and also like the transcripts of witnesses. Yes. Um, so you, you wheel it in, you make the presentation that you've just made, you instruct them on the law, on the probable cause standard, and then do they vote?
0: They do. And and uh, this, is, this is the one time where they are in the room just by themselves. So the prosecutors show them all the evidence present them with the indictment, go through the the legal standards, go through any questions they might have. And then the prosecutors leave the room and the grand jurors take a vote. And,
1: and then uh, five, five minutes later, they knock on the door and they say they're good? Pretty much. Is it kind of like when you get a massage and like sort of like the masseuse, like steps outside for a moment and then knocks on the door a couple minutes to see if you're ready?
0: Uh, the timing is similar, but at least I'm a little more tense when I'm waiting for the grand jury to uh, vote than than on that massage uh, analogy.
1: One of the prevailing myths about the grand jury, as you've hinted at so far, is that it is independent. Um, it seems like the only people who really think that are the justices of the Supreme Court. Here's a quote from a case, um, not from a— distant century, but from 1996, where the Supreme Court describes the grand jury as follows. The whole theory of the grand jury's function is that it belongs to no branch of the institutional government serving as a kind of buffer or referee between the government and the people. The Fifth Amendment's constitutional guarantee presupposes an investigative body acting independently of either a prosecuting attorney or a judge. That's from the case of United States v. Williams in 1996 where the Supreme Court said that a prosecutor had no obligation to present exculpatory evidence to the grand jury. Have you ever seen – or did you ever see in your experience as a prosecutor the grand jury act as a buffer or a referee between the government and the people?
0: No. I, I, don't, I don't think you could write that or think that. If you, ever, if you were ever a prosecutor and spent any time working with a grand jury. Uh, the grand jury, federal grand juries, I think, largely function as an adjunct of the prosecutors.
1: A less obvious part of the myth of grand jury independence is the extent to which it is totally dependent on the prosecutor. And I think this would be illustrated if you can explain – how the grand juries are notified to come and serve on their day of duty.
0: The U.S. Attorney's Office has a grand jury coordinator. That person works with the grand jurors after they're sworn in and assigned to a grand jury. Uh, and, and the grand juries hear and typically sit on a particular day. So there's a Tuesday grand jury for the economic crimes unit, a Thursday grand jury for health care fraud unit or what have you. And so th- once people are assigned... They are to show up week after week, unless notified otherwise. So, so, the grand jury coordinator might tell them, "You're not sitting this week." There's a hotline for the grand jurors to call into about weather or about uh, if, if they're reporting an absence or a vacation, and and otherwise, it's just on autopilot. They come every Tuesday. They serve from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. with an hour for lunch, uh, and and that's that's what they do. It's, it, it's then. That's part of their job.
1: So they don't come unless they're requested to come by the prosecutor's office,
0: right? And and in this district, at least uh, when I was in the office, if you didn't have at least half a day's worth of work for them to do, you 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 couldn't call them in. the 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 idea of calling them in for fifteen minutes or an hour or something was was uh, very disfavored. And, And if you didn't have, if if the prosecutors with that grand jury didn't have half a day's worth of work for them they would be called off
1: so the grand jury consists simply of these 23 people waiting to be notified if they're to come in on their particular day they don't have any staff they don't have any funding there's the grand jury doesn't have an office it doesn't have an executive director doesn't have a building doesn't have computers they might not even know the names of the other grand jurors right
0: Yeah. That's actually a really good way to think about it. And they don't fill out grand jury subpoenas. They don't tell the prosecutors typically who to call or what to ask for, or they are a vehicle by which evidence is presented. They're not doing anything affirmative.
1: And even if they wanted to be independent somehow, as opposed to just you know coming in and getting out of there as soon as they can. They don't really have the means to be independent, do they? Not at all. The grand, the grand jury's lack of independence has been reinforced, I think, ironically, by the su- Supreme Court. Like In decision after decision, the Supreme Court has uh, relied on this sort of myth of independence to refuse to put any restrictions on the type of evidence that the grand jury can hear. So I'm going to give you a true-false quiz on this. This is obviously a dramatic vehicle. You know what the answers are, and we both do, but let's try it anyway. True or false? An indictment can be based on erroneous instructions on the law. True. An indictment can be based on illegally seized evidence. True. An indictment can be based entirely on hearsay evidence. Also true. An indictment can be based on witness testimony that is entirely in response to leading questions by the prosecutor and the grand jury.
0: Happens regularly and and absolutely true.
1: A prosecutor has no obligation to present known exculpatory evidence to the grand jury.
0: Shockingly true, and that was from the, the, the case from the quote you read a few minutes ago.
1: True or false, a prosecutor can ask a grand jury to indict even where a prior grand jury has refused to do so based on the same evidence. True. Now, none of these forms of evidence would be permitted in a trial, correct? Correct. And most prosecutors that you know, we know, and I think most prosecutors, of course, don't take advantage um, and abuse their powers. Prosecutors... Um, by all, you know, consistently taking advantage of these sort of lax standards, but some do, and some are not that unusual. For example, wh- why would a prosecutor want to have a grand jury indict solely based on hearsay evidence?
0: Well, th- that and that typically happens when you you just put in an agent, and, and a lot of prosecutors interview percipient witnesses outside the grand jury and then just stick an agent in to summarize it all for the grand jury. And, and this way, uh, you the prosecutor limits uh, sworn testimony of witnesses, which, is, which can be an advantage for defense counsel at trial for cross-examination, has a nice kind of breezy summary witness for the grand jury who you know, is a law enforcement official, will present well, yield a pretty easy indictment. Uh, and and there's just less discovery that the prosecutor has to deal with,
1: and all of this happens in secret proceeding. The grand jury uh, not not only deliberates in secret, but the grand jury proceedings, what happens before the grand jury, uh, is also secret. Now there's a few kind of there's a few limitations on this sort of rule of grand jury secrecy. Who do the grand jury secrecy rules apply to?
0: They apply to the prosecutors and the grand jurors and the court reporter, but not to the witness. So the witness could go out and have a press conference that day if she wanted about what happened in the grand jury.
1: Here's what I asked. Here's how I responded. You know, this case is, you know, BS or whatever. No, nothing is prohibited. Nothing like that is prohibited. Right. Right. And the, the, we mentioned, You mentioned the grand jury transcripts, so grand jury transcripts don't normally or hardly ever become made public, um, but they do get turned over to defense counsel if there's going to be a trial, if the transcripts are the testimony of a witness who's the gov- who the government is going to use at trial, or if the transcript contains exculpatory information. Um, But do those transcripts really tell the whole story of what happened in the grand jury?
0: Uh, No. So the the transcript is a written recording of questions and answers. It doesn't show—wouldn't tell you, for example, if the witness paused for a minute and a half before answering the question. It wouldn't tell you if the prosecutor was screaming at the witness, Um, wouldn't tell you if the witness was crying. Uh, wouldn't tell you if the prosecutor and this is something I've seen was standing right behind the witness uh, even making contact with with the witness or the or the document right in front of the witness uh, while the questions are being asked in, in, a, in a you know quite physically intimidating way so there's a lot that the transcript can never tell us and and uh, you know if some some, Important information can be lost between what actually happens in the grand jury room and what's on the transcript.
1: Let's talk about grand jury subpoenas. Grand juries can issue subpoenas um, for corporations, for individuals, um, for almost for almost any reason. They can be served anywhere in the United States. But uh, but are these subpoenas? These are these aren't really issued by the grand jury, are they?
0: Not at all. Th- these are something that I think before computers, prosecutors had on a stack in their office, and now with computers, you just print it off and sign it. Uh, it says, grand jury subpoena, you shall produce to the grand jury on such and such a day, or you shall appear before the grand jury on such and such a day. The grand jury has no idea that that's been issued. Uh, or, it, it happens the prosecutor is running – not just running the show – is is deciding who to subpoena, when to subpoena, for what purpose. It, it's It has – all that it has to do with the grand jury is it says grand jury subpoena on it and witnesses may show up at the grand jury to testify one day.
1: So when you're wheeling that shopping cart of t- transcripts and documents into the grand jury for the uh, – when you ask them to indict – The grand jury may have never previously seen those documents that are in the shopping cart. And sometimes react with surprise about
0: the volume of it. There might be 15 boxes of documents from some bank or dozens of boxes from some other source that they really didn't know about until the last day.
1: And when you ask the grand jury to indict, do you – When you talked about earlier – do you give them the opportunity to go back and review the documents and the transcripts that you field before them?
0: I would typically tell them anything they want to look at, any testimony, any documents, any questions they have, anything at all, feel free. You I mean, You would want them to make sure that they had no question in their mind by the time they got to their vote.
1: And have you ever seen any evidence that they – Took you up on your invitation? No. I remember my first day in the U.S. Attorney's Office, I, I asked my boss about um, how do you get the grand jury to issue a subpoena? How is, what's the process? And, you know, I would come from a civil background and um, he, he looked at me as if I had two heads and just, you know, was alarmed that I didn't actually already had received the stack of grand jury subpoenas that, you know, must have been in the, uh, you know, the orientation kit or something.
0: Yeah, there's, and just on the subject of, of you know, surprise or, or what's what's the vote like? There are two polar extremes, I think, for grand jury votes. One is there are units like uh, gun units, drug units, where every day, all day, agents are in there testifying as summary witnesses, and indictments are being returned. It becomes very routine. The grand jurors get used to it. Uh, there's very little variety to it, and, and I, th- I think very little mystery to it uh, based on some of the, the those kinds of cases that, that I've done. Then there's the other end of the ex- uh, spectrum, which is long investigations, complicated investigations, six months, 12 months, 18 months, where the grand jury week after week is hearing evidence. They get invested in it. They get interested in it. Sometimes they're asked to extend in order to finish that investigation, and they want to achieve a result. So in a certain everyone's in it together on those very long investigations.
1: But the result they're looking for typically is not to uh, not return an indictment.
0: Agree,
1: yes, yes. Let's focus on how the prosecutor can use the grand jury, uh, specifically the subpoena power, not just to get an indictment returned by the grand jury, um, but also to develop the case as to be as strong as possible in the event there is a trial down the road. For example, h- how do um, prosecutors and agents uh, you know, use grand jury subpoenas to get people to agree to interviews?
0: So I just had this experience uh, recently where prosecutors will cut a grand jury subpoena, sign it, and give it to the agents and say, go out and interview these people. And they'll show up at uh, 6 a.m. at their house or at their gym or in line with them at Starbucks and say, we need to talk to you, and I've, I've got this subpoena, and you know, we can either do this, you can either go all the way to the grand jury and testify there, and that's really complicated and difficult, or just, just spend a few minutes talking to me now, and we can see if we can knock this out. And it works a lot of the time.
1: Why would the prosecutor and the agent prefer to have someone um, be interviewed sort of on the spot as opposed to actually coming to the grand jury and testifying.
0: Well, I, I, I hope this doesn't this isn't too cynical. I don't think it is. Uh, on the spot, people are off guard. Uh, they're not prepared. The, prosecutor, the, the agents, rather, may be asking them questions about transactions, about documents, about things that, that the prosecution and agent team have been studying for weeks or months and are very well-versed on, uh, and springing it on a witness who, as I said, isn't prepared. Uh, is, is likely to want to just get this over with and, and may, in an unguarded way, say things that are, that are uh, perhaps not entirely accurate. Um, and this witness is, in the moment, not represented. Uh, people who go to the grand jury often get a lawyer, prepare for the, the, the day of testimony, review relevant information, Uh, get an understanding of what it is the prosecutors are going to be asking about. So it levels the playing field in a way that I think often the prosecutors and the agents would prefer not to have leveled.
1: I mean, there could be a strange level of compulsion in the the grand jury subpoena itself. I I once represented a guy who um, received a grand jury subpoena, was not represented by counsel at that point. The grand jury subpoena told him to report to the U.S. Attorney's Office which in Boston was right around the corner from the grand jury room. So he went to the US attorney's office, he identified himself. Um, the prosecutor met him very nicely with the agent and sat him down in a conference room and asked him a bunch of questions. and he made, you know multiple admissions, you know or as we say, he puked all over himself. He never went into the grand jury. I'm not sure there was ever any intent. To have him go into the grand jury uh, but when i when i talked to him about this and this was a guy he was not a terribly bright guy but he seemed to think that he he knew he had to come testify to the grand jury he knew subpoena meant you have to do it but he thought when he went to talk to the, comp- the prosecutor that was just as mandatory just as compulsory as the grand jury subpoena itself it just he just didn't distinguish between the two
0: i i love that story and I think most people would not necessarily know the difference between showing up at a courthouse, going into the U.S. Attorney's Office, talking to some prosecutors and agents, was that my grand jury appearance, or do I have to go to this other room where there are these 23 strangers? I mean, it, it, it's a, people are scared by getting a grand jury subpoena, as they often should be, and I don't think most lay people, probably most lawyers who don't practice in this area necessarily know the distinction
1: yeah judge Judge O'Toole did not see it the same way, and he denied my motion to suppress the statements without um without an extensive written opinion. shall we say How can a prosecutor use grand jury subpoenas to sort of neutralize or minimize anticipated unfavorable testimony from a witness?
0: well, one way to do that is call people call those kinds of witnesses into the grand jury and examine them uh, in ways that gets out whatever it is that might be unfavorable, try to chip away at it or, or ask questions that, that might also include favorable testimony, and neutralize the witness as much as you can. I mean, it, it serves two purposes. One, find out whatever they have that might not be good for your case, but also you get a free shot at neutralizing that testimony in the grand jury.
1: And again, you can do this all by using leading questions. Absolutely. And you could show the witness a document and point out the – sh- you don't have to give the witness time to read the entire document. You could just point out the parts that you want the witness to focus on, correct?
0: Right. And, na- and now you've got a transcript that is in some ways favorable to you so that if and when that same witness testifies at trial, you've got cross-examination uh, ready to go.
1: How else can the prosecutor use grand jury subpoenas to um advance his case? Can you try things out with the grand jury with in front of the grand jury with the witness to see how they might work at trial
0: very much so and 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 you know one of the ways that, that grand juries can be useful in in maybe a nontraditional way is uh, you can ask the grand jurors what did you think of that? Does anyone else have any uh, – what I would often do once I got to know the grand jury a little bit is excuse the witness from the room and ask the grand jurors, jurors does anyone have any questions? And they usually would. Now, some of them were off the wall, and I would screen them, but some of them were, were useful, and some people would have reactions to a particular person or a particular line of testimony that was informative.
1: I mean, defense attorneys pay tens of thousands of dollars to use jury consultants in preparing for trial, and the prosecutors got a free one just sitting there. Is that fair to say? Uh,
0: it is in, in some ways. They're, they're being tested to a different standard, but, but they give you an honest community reaction to certain people, certain concepts. Uh, it's, I always found that to be a pretty useful uh, way of, of interacting with them.
1: So, Jeremy, since you've been a defense attorney, you've represented corporations and individuals uh, in investigations who have received grand jury subpoenas. Um, Let's just talk first briefly about corporations. What room for advocacy and lawyering is there um, as the attorney for a corporation when a corporation has received a grand jury subpoena asking it to you know, produce to documents?
0: Usually those subpoenas, because they're directed to a company, are very broad, uh, asking for anything and everything. And so there's usually room for, if nothing else, getting a priority list from the prosecutor. What do you really want and what do you want first as opposed to sometime down the road? And most prosecutors are amenable to that conversation because they, they want... Something sooner than later, and and they're they're willing to engage. So there's an ability to uh, focus, uh, have a conversation with the prosecutors that focuses on what what they are actually interested in, and sometimes to to narrow the uh, the scope to to something that's beyond anything and everything they've asked for.
1: But you don't really have the ability, as you would in a civil case, to to make objections and to complain about. Relevance or burdensomeness, things like that—is that correct?
0: Yeah, in the typical civil litigation context, there are document requests or even subpoenas for for non-parties that are always subject to the same litany of objections. It's overbroad. It's burdensome. It's not relevant. It's this. It's that. None of that really flies in a in response to a grand jury subpoena. Uh, you know the one area where where there is uh, respect for not producing something, uh, both in the civil context and certainly the grand jury is privilege. Uh, but but that's it's not a I don't have to produce uh, everything else. It's just a a uh, an aspect of what's not going to be produced in response to the subpoena.
1: Let's talk about representing individuals who've received grand jury subpoenas. And let's let me give you a little bit of a kind of a hypothetical here. So. You've got a client who has received a grand jury subpoena. Thankfully, the the client was not home when the grand jury when the agents came to serve the subpoena, so it hasn't already talked and maybe made admissions. Um, so let's say the client is sort of a supervisor level salesperson at a pharmaceutical company. You interview the person and you conclude that well, the client wasn't like a you know a real. Senior person, but was involved in some sales practices that, you know, the government might view as problematic, and you've got sort of this whole. This is sort of like the background. How do you deal with the prosecutor? What's your What's your next move?
0: Next move is call the prosecutor and find out what's the status of my client. And by that, I mean, uh, from the prosecutor's perspective, is she a target of the investigation? Meaning, the prosecutors have evidence that she's committed crimes and, and has some sense that she may be charged? Is she a subject of the investigation, meaning she has knowledge that's uh, within the ambit of the grand jury's investigation and you know, could be at risk? Or is she just a witness, the, someone who, who saw the light was green and they need to hear from someone that the light was green and she has no, no uh, exposure?
1: So, the the prosecutor's response presumably will be with this kind of a person, um, as it is with probably 90% of the people who get grand jury subpoenas, subject, correct?
0: Yeah. Can't really say. Investigation's ongoing. I mean, we can say she's a subject, but uh, where on the spectrum, not really sure. Depend on the investigation. What can you tell us about her? And and that's when uh, and they say, we really would like to hear from her.
1: Can we schedule something? And then what, what do you do with that information?
0: Well, I want to find out from my client what she knows. If if there's a company involved, get the documents from the company. We're usually working together at that point, uh, particularly if she's a current employee uh, or even in some former employee situations. And and assess the exposure here. If uh, if you know that other people are going in who are more or higher level, lower level, kind of get some sense of where she fits in. And then... In that situation, the ironclad way to be comfortable is to get immunity, get an immunity order from the prosecutors that your client can come in, testify truthfully, and whatever she says, she's not going to be prosecuted. Over the last several years, the U.S. Attorney's Office here has been more reluctant to just give an immunity without kicking the tires pretty hard. And so there are things you can do. You can do what's called an attorney proffer, where I, as the defense lawyer, tell the prosecutor what I think the witness would say if she was asked these questions. It gives them an opportunity to evaluate what she might say based on other things they've learned, based on documents they've looked at, whether they think that's helpful, whether they think that would be truthful. And that can kickstart an immunity conversation.
1: What about cooperation? If the prosecutor hints that we'd, we'd like to you know, hear from her and you know, we think that, uh, you know, she could be helpful to us. How do you navigate that?
0: It depends on the prosecutor. If it's someone I trust, I would consider bring the witness in for an interview if I understand that that's on the course to getting immunity. In other words, if, if she comes in, she's interviewed, and everyone's got eyes wide open about what she is likely to say, and if she says that, they're going to apply for an immunity order for her. That... Uh, I would strongly consider and strongly advise clients to to consider. If it's, we've got a big investigation, she can help herself by coming in, she really should cooperate, no promises, no guarantees, and I don't know the prosecutor or, or trust the prosecutor, I'm very reluctant at that point.
1: Is there a risk to not bringing a witness in in that situation where you think the witness has some exposure, um, but the prosecutor is insisting on the witness coming in for an interview before any decision can be made about immunity.
0: Yeah, there's risk both ways. Uh, there's risk in bringing someone in uh, to, to for an interview. You risk them exposing themselves to false statement, 18 U.S. Code 1001 liability. Uh, you risk the prosecutors not thinking they were forthcoming or honest or, or – as, as uh truthful as the prosecutors wanted which is a can be a moving target and a, a difficult target to reach but there's also it's very disarming you bring someone in you're in a room together there can be a certain human connection there and and so there can be a big advantage to bring someone in and the uh, prosecutor's deciding this isn't this isn't a person i want to to jam up i i want to get this person's testimony and and move on
1: and in the event where a client would ultimately testify in the grand jury. Tell us about that experience. You're not allowed in the grand jury with the with your client, correct?
0: It's One of the least fun things we do, I think, because bringing a client to testify in the grand jury, uh, obviously you prepare them, and then you're not allowed past the threshold, past this sort of doorway where all the grand jury rooms are. So you sit out, out in the waiting room. Your client goes in there for an hour, two hours, comes out and you immediately ask, well, what did they ask you? What did you tell them? And you get about five minutes worth of answers for two hours worth of testimony. Uh, you know, we, we all do our best to try to recreate through them what happened in there, uh, but we're not there and and we never exactly know unless and until we ever see a transcript.
1: What is the dynamic when you have to recommend to a client in the hype that we've Suppose the government says, "Well, we just need—they need to come into the grand jury," and you think it's in your client's interest to take the fifth. If that if that happens, does that mean that it's a simple process from there, and the client just is going to take the fifth, and you're not worried about it anymore? Some prosecutors
0: will just allow you, as the lawyer, to say she's going to invoke her Fifth Amendment rights, and they don't make them come in. But but the ones who make them come in, uh, there, there's a spectrum. Some of them, you know, you give. I typically will give the clients an a index card that says exactly how they should invoke their Fifth Amendment rights. Uh, some prosecutors will ask them one or two or three or five questions, they invoke their Fifth Amendment rights, and then they're they're out of there. Others will go on for a much longer time and, and sometimes quarrel with, well, is there really a Fifth Amendment right in response to these kinds of questions? Uh, and then so,
1: later you can have to litigate that and it goes on forever. Jeremy, this has been great. Thank you so much for coming and and sharing your experiences. Before you leave, I have to ask you the mandatory guest question. Uh, What was your first concert? How old were you? What venue, and who did you go with?
0: First concert was The Who in 1982 at the Capitol Center in Landover, Maryland. And I went with a bunch of high school friends, Steve Holland, Devin Arkin, Mitch Berman, and others behind
1: blue eyes thanks jeremy have a great day thank you thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with jeremy let's continue the conversation you can find me jim rehnquist at goodwinlaw.com or on linkedin talk to you later